I'm gonna, I'm gonna be as succinct as I can today. Um, and I want to share with you something that the Lord um, shared with me several weeks back. Have um, you ever had one of those moments where um, the Lord like highlights a passage, maybe you're you know, reading or, or doing devotions or something, or he just like a scripture pops in your mind and, and the Lord's like, read that. And you read it and it's super applicable to your situation. And it's, it's like timely. This is, this is one of those things where the Lord just kind of dropped this and said, I need you to, to read this. So um, I, I just want to share this passage with you because it's something that um, the Lord is, is, has been dealing for the last uh, few years with me. And, um, and I, I think that this is a word over this house as well. Okay, so we're in Zechariah chapter 3. And um, while you're getting there, let me just give you some quick background, okay? The year at this particular part of the passage is the year 520 BC. Cyrus is the king of Persia. Israel was taken captive by Babylon, and the city of Jerusalem was burned down and decimated. Babylon gets overthrown by Persia, and Cyrus commissions a group. Uh, that, well, when, let me back up. When Israel got decimated, thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Jews got exiled to be servants in Babylon. So they left their, their place of origin. They were slaves in Babylon. Persia takes over, becomes the world power at this particular time in history. And Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, commissions uh, people to begin returning, Jews to begin returning back to Israel, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. The very first thing that they set their heart to do is to build an altar before the Lord. This is around the year uh, Cyrus released the Jews to go back from out of exile back to Jerusalem around 538 B.C., and they set their heart to build an altar to the Lord in 536. It, t- it took them two years of planning, preparation, all that kind of stuff. So in 536 BC, the first thing they do in the rubble of Jerusalem is build an altar. Now, conventional wisdom would tell you, you should probably not build an altar first. You should probably restore your walls, right? You should probably set up your defenses. But that's not in the heart of Israel at this point because their heart is trying to serve and follow the Lord. And in in the central part of the nation of Israel is the deity, is God himself, the divine, right? The creator, and they wanna like mark this territory for God, so they set set up an altar first. In the, in the rubble of the mess that they found themselves in. Now, like I said, our story takes place in 520 B.C. This is 16 years after the altar is built. In that 16-year period, nothing else got done in Jerusalem. No temple rebuilt, no walls rebuilt, no economy restored. Nothing is happening for 16 years In that 16-year period, internal struggle between the Jews that had returned back to to Jerusalem happened. Their neighboring countries like Samaria began to, uh, to fight with them and perturb them and cause strife. And so nothing got done during this time period. 
And then you have two prophets, the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah that rise up in the middle of all the chaos that's going on and they begin to uh, prophesy the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. And in 520, Haggai and Zechariah, if you read through the book of Haggai, you see mainly what the book of Haggai covers is this idea where uh, God is calling the people to rebuild the temple, rebuild the temple. And then mainly in the book of Zechariah, what he as a prophet is speaking the word uh, of the Lord over the people of Israel is to repent, return to the Lord. So you have these ideas, these two prophets that rise in this particular time period of history with Israel, and the call is to return to the Lord, repent and rebuild, repent and rebuild. Why? Because there had been years and years of nothing. They had set their mind to do it. They got the altar up and then fell short. You know, I believe that everything, um, even though all this stuff actually happened, like it was biblically uh, a historical event that happened in the Bible, um, I believe that everything has spiritual imagery. And this sounds a lot like us, you know, like we meet Jesus and we have great intentions and we're like, yes, Lord, we're going to do that thing. We're going to set our mind to rebuild. We're going to set our mind to serve you. We're going to set our mind to follow you with all of our hearts. And then slowly but surely, we look back over the course of our life and we go years down the road, what happened, right? I had set my heart to do this thing and I I built this cool altar, right? But, oh man, what has happened? Well, there was internal struggle, right? There was external struggle. There was struggle. There was all the stuff going on. I think that sometimes along the way, as we are, like Philippians 2 says, working out our salvation in fear and trembling, hindrances come. And we find ourselves in a pause. We find ourselves in this middle space of the thing that we believe that we're called to do, uh, what the Lord is asking us to step into, and where we haven't quite seen some of this stuff fulfilled yet. And uh, that's the moments that we need the word of the Lord. It's in those moments that we need the word of the Zechariahs and the Haggaiis. It's it's those moments where it's been 16 years since we've seen the Lord do something or since we've actually set our mind to do something in partnership with him that we need the Lord to show up and move on our behalf in a prophetic word. And that's what happens in Zechariah chapter 3. The word of the Lord shows up. Now picture this with me. There's a courtroom setting. As I read Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah had multiple visions in this one night. And this is one of the visions that that we're going to read about. And uh, the picture that I want you to get before we read it is a courtroom setting. Okay? Y'all remember some of the, maybe the the more seasoned people in the room. Y'all remember People's Court? Judge Wapner? Bum, bum, bum. Come on. Y'all know what I'm talking about. People's court. Picture the courtroom, right? And in the courtroom, you've got the judge and you've got the prosecution and you've got the defendants and you've got all the the people watching and all the stuff happening in the courtroom. So as I read this, get that picture in your mind. Zechariah chapter 3. It says, Then... The angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, 
standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this the brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So here's the picture, right? You have God in, in the story. You have God sitting on the throne as judge. In a courtroom, the prosecution is always to the right of the judge, right? And it says here, Satan standing at the right hand to accuse the high priest Joshua. So the prosecution is on the right hand and he is accusing. That's what he is doing, right? Then you have the angel of the Lord and you have Joshua who is the high priest of Israel. Now this Joshua is not the Joshua of the book of Joshua that led the people from the wilderness into the promised land Canaan. That happened hundreds of years prior to this. This is another guy by the name of Joshua who was a Levite. He was uh, the high priest of Israel. And you have him standing on trial before God. Now, I want to kind of point out some of the players in this story, right? Obviously, Satan, you know, the enemy, the accuser, that one's clear. You know what his job is. He accuses. By the way, in Hebrew, the word accuse and the word Satan are interchangeable. It's the same word. Satan is just a noun. In Hebrew, it's the word Satan. And the word accuse is the word, the Hebrew word Satan as well, but it's a verb. It's something that he is doing. So his job description, the enemy's job description is to accuse, right? So that's what's happening in this story. Now, who does Joshua, the high priest, represent? First and foremost, Joshua, in this current context, Joshua represents the people of Israel. How do I know this is because in this story, uh, God himself says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. He's making reference to Joshua, who is the high priest. He's saying, this guy is the representation of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament Levitical law, the high priests were responsible as the acting mediator between God and the people. So that's what he was the symbol of, is as he's standing there as a high priest, he is the mediator between God and the whole nation of Israel. Um, also, uh, Joshua is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because if you know a little bit about Hebrew, I'm going to fill you in. The word Joshua in Hebrew is the word Yeshua, and it means the Lord saves. Jesus is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Yeshua. So whenever you see Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. So Joshua, who is the high priest at this current stage in history in 520 BC, by the way, when the temple got rebuilt, the first high priest of the new temple was Joshua. <laughs> is that not crazy? Like God is amazing how he does this stuff. Like history, it's crazy. So um, Joshua is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's the high priest. He's standing in a courtroom setting clothed in filthy garments. Um, now, 
who is the angel of the Lord? It says he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, there's a, a, a lot of different um, debates about this. I'm just going to give you Brent International version for a minute. All right, this is my application of this. So if you disagree with me, that's fine. You can email me later. Um, but I personally believe that the angel of the Lord is um, the, the embodiment, the physical embodiment uh, manifestation of God himself because the angel of the Lord speaks on behalf of God. He does things on God's behalf. So the angel of the Lord, in my opinion, is Jesus. He's a pre-incarnate Jesus. He's a representation of Jesus in the Old Testament. He shows up in multiple places. And so catch this, in the courtroom setting, you have God sitting on the throne as judge. You have the enemy as the prosecutor hurling accusations at the people of Israel. As Joshua, who is the acting high priest, filthy, clothed in filth, and you have Jesus, the angel of the Lord, standing on the defendant side on his behalf. This is like a powerful setting, okay? This is a powerful vision that's happening. Now, to an Israelite, to a Jew, somebody who uh, was hearing this for the first time, this would be absolutely shocking for them to hear. The reason why is because the high priest had to go through all sorts of ceremonial cleansings to walk in the presence of the Lord. He had to take a bath multiple times, washings, all this kind of stuff. He had to wear all this certain outfit. And if I had time, I would show you and we'd talk about it and it'd be amazing. There's symbols for everything that they wear. They had to do all of these things. And when they were ceremonially pure, according to Levitical law, they could walk into the Holy of Holies completely clean before God and be acceptable before him. So for them to see the image of the high priest Joshua dirty standing before the Lord, see, there's been times in, uh, in history where priests have stepped into the Holy of Holies unclean and they die. So when the original hearers would have heard this vision, they would have been like, uh-oh, Joshua's getting it. He's dirty. He's standing before God as judge. He is getting ready to be judged. Man, don't we feel like that? Don't we feel like that? Like if God came into the room and sat down beside you, would you have this moment of, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. Let me rack my Rolodex for a minute. Did I do something wrong in the last 10 minutes, 20 years, 35 minutes, uh, entire life? Please, I'm sorry, God. Oh, Joshua's dirty standing before the Lord. He represents the guilt, the shame of Israel, the missteps of Israel. Now, they can look back through hundreds of years of missteps, but the most recent misstep is the fact that they promised that they were going to rebuild the temple and they were going to rebuild the city, and it's been 16 years and nothing has been done. This is why Zechariah is calling them to repent and Haggai is calling them to rebuild is because they've done nothing. They're missing the mark actively. Joshua is standing before God dirty. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you have been grafted into the family of God's chosen, which is Israel. So when you read about Israel here, you're a part of God's chosen. You're adopted in. So this courtroom setting, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. You're called on account before the Lord and you're in filth and all the readers know that the accuser's words are true 
They're not unfounded. The accuser is actually speaking things that probably were actually going on. They know they've been disobedient. Just like whenever you stand before God sometimes, you know you've been disobedient. You know you've missed the mark. You know if you and God sat down and had a conversation, what the enemy would be saying. The enemy has legal right to accuse all of us. Why? Because we miss the mark. Did you know that the enemy is the greatest lawyer ever? He knows the Old Testament law through and through more better than any of us. He uses it to his advantage. He has legal right to accuse all of us because why? God is holy and he requires a standard. He requires nothing less than perfection. It's why the enemy has legal right to accuse all of us. So the catch in all of this, <laughs> part of the key to this story is the fact that Joshua is standing before God in filthy garments. This is key to understanding this passage. Filthy garments are the key. Because notice in the story that the rebuke of God came to Satan. And the rebuke of God at Satan, he rebuked the enemy's accusations. Catch this, while Joshua was still dirty. While Joshua was still dirty. Reminds me of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that says, While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. The original hearers of this would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that legally speaking, according to Levitical law, the person who is filthy standing before God was worthy of immediate death. And yet God himself as judge sitting on the throne says, rebuke you, O Satan. Rebuke your word, O Satan, because I've chosen Jerusalem. You see, that word rebuke is powerful. The word rebuke, um, it's a Hebrew word. It means, it's, it, it's uh, the word gahar. Now, in um, Hebrew, there's a in there, and I can't, I don't have that. It's not in me. So I'm just going to call it gahar, because that's the best I got. This word rebuke means to, um, to disdain, to loathe something. Um, it, it, it means, the, symbolically, the word rebuke means that, that something is being torn down or that something is progressing and all of a sudden it gets stopped in its tracks. Remember with me uh, a story in the Gospels where Jesus is in a boat and a storm comes up and he wakes up and he rebukes the storm. What happens? The storm immediately stops. That's the word picture. There is a forward momentum of accusation in your life, in my life. The enemy is actively accusing, and we are standing before God. The angel of the Lord is our defendant on our behalf. And what happens when the enemy begins to accuse God himself? This isn't the angel of the Lord. This isn't Jesus speaking. This is God as judge sitting on the throne. He says, rebuke you, Satan. In other words, shut your mouth. You have nothing to say. In this moment, I have chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen Israel. Friends, I am here to tell you that the God of the universe chooses you. He chooses you. 
That word choose means, uh, in the Hebrew, it means that God has looked intently into the soul of every single one of us. He's looked deeply into who you are. It's not about your GPA. It's not about your list of accolades. It's not about what kind of job you have or who you are. When God looks at you, he sees a wonderful craftsmanship, a beautiful creation that he designed. He sees the goodness of his image wanting to sprout forth within you. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It doesn't matter what you're going to do 10 years from now. It doesn't matter what you did 10 years ago. When God looks at you, all he sees is his beautiful craftsmanship. And if you have a problem receiving that, it's because you've so identified with shame that that shame will allow you to receive the fact that the Lord is madly in love with you. He sees you as a wonderful creation. A craftsmanship. Receive that in the name of Jesus. Because what God is doing right now is he is rebuking the accusation of the enemy. Here's the thing. If that is going on, if God is rebuking the accusation of the enemy in the courts of heaven, why do we give the accusation of the enemy power? Why do I listen to that more so than I do the word of the Lord? If God says I'm clean, then I'm clean. If God says I'm forgiven, then I'm forgiven. If God says I'm a craftsmanship, then why do I tell myself I'm not? Why do I tell myself that I'm messy and that I'm broken and that I'm never going to get any better? Why do we do those things? We give power to the accusation. The accusation has no power in and of itself. It only has what we give it. You see... Part of the reason why we do that is because those accusations are true. In reality, I've messed up a lot. I've missed the mark a ton. My past has messed me up. The enemy knows my past. He knows my story. He knows where I've missed the marks. And he loves to bring that kind of stuff up over and over again. Every time that the accusation of the enemy like, starts to seep into my thought processes and my feelings and all that kind of stuff... Um, it's almost always something that I have done before. It's almost always something that I've done before. Every now and again, he'll throw like a random thing that's not true, that's like a falsity. You know, like Josh preached a few weeks ago and he talked about, um, you know, those like random thoughts that come into your brain, like what if you freaked out and like killed everybody? You know what I mean? Like what if, what if like you set off a bomb in a gas station or you know what I mean? Like something and you're like, what, where did that come from? Like, that's not, and, and the, the, you go, that's not me. But then you hear, or are you capable of that? Maybe you are. And all of a sudden, you're like, where'd that come from? What and then when you begin to entertain that thought process, that's where the enemy begins to grab hold. You see, he's going to call up the things of your past. He's going to throw any kind of falsity at you to make you entertain that thought instead of going, Lord, what, what is that that you say about me? I, I know you're rebuking the accusation, so like, what do you say? that you've chosen me, tell me who you say that I am. You see, God has rebuked any accusation that comes against his sons and daughters because he's chosen us. So why do we give it power? Why do we give it power? One of the reasons why we give it power, not only is it true, those accusations, but you see, when we engage with an accusation of the enemy, Picture it this way. Accusation is the doorway, 
And when we step through the doorway, shame is the party that we just got invited to. When we step into the accusation of the enemy and we take a minute and we step in that doorway, we realize, whoa, this is the shame party and I'm not sure I want to be here. But you're sucked in. You see, there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is something that the Holy Spirit utilizes to push you toward the Lord. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. I am bad. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. You see, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to, when you miss the mark, he wants to begin to attach shame to that missing of the mark, that place where you've, come, you've fallen short, like Scripture says, we've all fallen short of the glory of the Lord, right? So what, what, what the enemy wants to do is throw an accusation that attaches itself in the form of shame. And then when shame starts to settle into your life, what you begin to say is not, um, man, I really messed up, I'm, you know, whatever. You start saying, I am that. I am uh, angry. I am an addict. I am fill in the blank, whatever it is, all those kind of things. You begin to, th- those things become you. And if you say that long enough, then it becomes even foreign to imagine yourself as not that. That's why inner healing is so powerful because sometimes we've identified with something that's not us for so long that we think it is us. And the enemy wants to, he wants to like lean in on that and God wants to break us free from that. He wants to break us free. God says, they're a brand plucked from the fire. You see, the picture is like there's a, a stick that, that just that got thrown in the fire and the point of that is to burn up. And the word pluck means to save. So they got saved from the fire. For us, like, yes, we got, we got saved from eternal um, hell, but we also, like, on this side of eternity, we also get saved from things. And did you know that part of the fire that you can be plucked from is the fire of shame? Because when you step into that accusation and you start uh, beginning to identify with it, shame is a relentless fire that will burn up your insides. It will burn you inwardly. Those great plans that you have to partner with the Lord and do some amazing things with him and walk in relationship and enjoy the relationship, the community that Jesus had uh, for us, like all that kind of stuff that you have in your thought process, if you allow shame in, it will keep you from that. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what did they do? They realized they were naked and they hid from God. That's what shame wants to do. Why? Because they were naked and ashamed. That's the point. Shame wants to keep you, make you hide from the Lord. The only, oh, by the way, um, if, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, the enemy knows that he can't kill you. So his, his goal is to render you ineffective. If he can't kill you, he wants to render you ineffective. If your soul is eternally with God and and you're going to heaven, you've got your fire insurance, you've got your ticket to heaven, that's great, hallelujah, okay? However, what about the rest of your life? What about what you do here on this planet, right? If the enemy can fill you with shame, then you will be rendered ineffective for the Lord. In the wonderful, abundant John 10, 10 life that you can have here, you can't live, 
because you're full of missteps and shame and brokenness. Sin and shame will keep you greeting your anointing from afar. God knows who he designed you to be because he made you. But as long as you continue to allow the shame to, to well up inside you, all you will do is greet your anointing from afar. You will greet who God says you are from afar. You'll see it from a distance. You see, the only thing that can put out that fire of shame is repentance. That's why Zechariah was calling him, he was calling him up. Repentance, this idea, the word repent literally means to turn, to change your mind. You were going this way and now you're going that way. That's the goal is Zechariah saying, hey guys, I know you've missed the mark. I know you've done, done a bunch of dumb things. Turn around. Change your thought process. You can do that. When you repent, that is the beginning of the shame leaving and you listening to who the Lord says that you are. That's nuts, right? So what happens in this story to kind of bring this to a, a close, right? Um, it says in Zechariah chapter three, verse four, it says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Okay, so catch this. The angel said that, right? The angel, i.e. Jesus says, remove the garments from who? Joshua. Who's Joshua? That's the people of Israel. That's us. That's all of us who have stepped into relationship with him. Jesus says, remove the filthy garments from him and to him, Jesus, the angel of the Lord said, behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Vestments means um, like royal garb, the priestly uh, um, clothes that uh, Joshua was supposed to wear. That's the reason why I believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus because only Jesus can take away the sin. He says, behold, I've taken away your sin. I've taken away your iniquity. Put on clean clothes. Put on royal garments. In 1 Peter, it says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And not only does God himself as judge rebuke the accusation of Satan while we were still sinners, he does this. Jesus, as our defendant says, oh, and by the way, I'll give my life my perfect sinless life for this guy, this girl, these people, and we'll clothe them and make them pure and whole so that they can forever stand in right relationship with us. You see, God doesn't wanna just leave us dirty. That's not the point of this life. God wants to clothe you with purity. He wants to clothe you with character. He wants to clothe you with power. He doesn't want you to muddle through this life and barely get by. He wants you to win at life. He wants you to kick the enemy in the face at life. He wants you to knock down walls at life. He wants you to win territory back for him on this planet. That's why he's given you these things. He's given you the power of his very spirit. He's anointed you from on high with gifts, with creativity, with opportunity. If you just repent and turn your heart and say, God, I'm fully and wholly yours. And Jesus says, I'll cleanse you. I'll give you my spirit. And I love this part. Like, this is mind-blowing. 
Joshua was cleansed because the Lord requires holy worship. He requires holy worship. But Zechariah, watch this. He says in verse five, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So Zechariah has not been in this story yet, right? He's just been watching this courtroom scene from a distance. And then all of a sudden, he speaks up. Zechariah says, hey, you forgot the turban. Now that's a part of the priestly garb, all right? It was a white um, hat and on the front of it, it had this gold um, thing around it. And it basically said like holiness of God. And, and, and it was, the white was the symbol of purity. And the, the gold meant that, they, it, that, that we were branded in, in purity for the Lord. Like that was the point of the priestly garment. And, um, and Zechariah says, put a turban on his head. I love that because that is the prophetic partnership that Zechariah got to engage with in this moment. He wasn't just standing back watching this happen. He actually became a participant. Friends, you might be a Zechariah in someone's life. You might be the person that God is raising up to say, that's not you. You're better than that. You are called to holiness. You're called to follow the Lord like that. You might be a Zechariah in someone's life. You might be watching our culture as it's drifting and we're saying we want to serve the Lord and all that kind of stuff, but we're wasting our time. We're wasting away. You might be the one that God calls and says, I want to call you up to give a prophetic word of the Lord that turns the heart of the people back to repentance. Because you see, what happened out of these visions is the temple got restored. The temple got rebuilt. Like, Like Zechariah's word actually became truth. That is powerful. That is what God is calling you to do. He's calling you to do that, to be that. There's a prophetic partnership. And see, friends, I believe in this season that that is what the call is over this place. You see, I believe that the Lord is calling us in this season to repent and to rebuild. I have seen this personally over the course of the last few years of my life. I went through five years ago asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And dude, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like that was, it wrecked everything. It messed everything up, right? I had like a normal life going on and preaching, doing my thing, and it was great. And then when I asked for the baptism of the Spirit, God says, are you sure? Like, do you realize when you are asking for purity, for holiness, like I'm, I'm gonna come and start reorienting your life. And I'm like, yes, Lord, this sounds great, right? And I'm singing that song and I'm like, woo yeah, shake down the wall, tear down the walls and all that kind of stuff. And then God comes in and says, that part of your life, I hate that. And I go, what? But I've been defined by that. I've carried that around for my whole life. And he says, I want it out. And then I had to, You know, oh man, James, James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And so I come and I start confessing stuff and I start laying my life out and I realize like I need inner healing. I need the the, the power of God to come in and reorient every part of my life. And so I begin repenting of all of this stuff Things that the Lord began calling to me, and he says, all right, now let's rebuild. 
All those places that I've knocked down, all those false idols and all that stuff that you thought was you, that's not you. I rebuke all that accusation in the name of Jesus. Let me show you who you really are, son. And when I actually started to believe that I was a son of the Most High, like I'm not there, guys. I am a wreck. I'll just be honest. But he is redefining who I know that I am every single day. And that is powerful, powerful stuff. So I believe that we're in a season of repenting and rebuilding. I believe that this is the, this is the groundwork of a move of God that we've not seen before in this place. And I'm inviting you to come. Like, I'll, I'll be the Zechariah if that's what it takes. I'm inviting you to come. I'm telling you, it's not going to be awesome it's going to be glorious. The word glory originally means heavy. Why does God want mighty men and women? Why does God want soldiers who have strengthened hands for war? Because his glory is heavy. And when his glory begins to set in, you have to have the character to stand. When the fire passes over you, you have to have the strength to stand pure before God, clothed by the blood of Jesus Christ, perfect and made whole because Jesus is perfect. That's who he designed this house to be.